0: Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to God's Planning. My name is Father Patrick Mary Briscoe. I'm one of the chaplains at Providence College up here in beautiful Rhode Island. Oh my goodness, it's so nice right now. These, uh, These summer days of just entirely exhausting and soul-crushing heat have finally broken to a gentle foretaste of fall, and I am living for it. I'm joined here today uh, with my confrere, friar, my brother in holy religion, Father Gregory Maria Pine. Hello, Father Gregory. (laughs) How's it going? Thanks. Thanks. I've been after taking so much shade from Father Jacob Bertrand about my introductions. You know, I decided today that I was going to be as radio host as possible, and I would just marshal it all.
1: Well, I congratulate you on that. You've uh, you've succeeded. So, kudos. Thank you.
0: Yeah, great. <coughs> I worked for that. How are things in DC? What are you up to?
1: Um, I would say things are good. Um, what am I up to? We are. That's good. Uh,
0: I mean, it's good that things are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to hear um, that. Good. <laughs>
1: uh, things in DC are just kind of, you know, cruising along. Um, good. Yeah. How would I characterize, how would I characterize it? He says, while while gathering his thoughts, I'm actually somewhat distracted because you were describing the beautiful weather in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And, um, I was thinking of the summer that I spent in Providence, the summer of 2012, great year. And, um, I was recalling the heat because, um, my assignment that year was, uh, to conduct a parish census for Saint Pius V, where you were formerly posted, and um, it was like nine weeks of knocking on people's doors and asking them, basically, like how the parish could better serve them. But it was, I would say, stiflingly hot. Mm. I would say infernally hot. Mm. I would say mm. uh, very hot. Yes. We'll leave it at very. Yes. Um, yes. And so right. the, the the typical day was, you know, like start at X o'clock in the morning, and then sweat until you know like X plus four, and then go and pray, and then you know eat lunch. And then just lather, rinse, repeat for the afternoon. It was fascinating. So a lot of sweating went on that summer. You wouldn't think it, you know, because it's so, you know, up there on the map. But alas, being up there on the map doesn't always equate with being cool. Um, yeah.
0: July in the ocean state is rough. But, um, you know, right now, and and you know, we have a few more hot days around the corner. I have no illusions about that. Um, that what we're experiencing right now is just a gentle respite and a pledge of future glory.
1: Mm, cheers. Yeah. Well, I guess getting back to the original question, th- things in DC are going well. Um, yeah, I'm about to leave for graduate studies in Switzerland, so kind of getting excited right. about that. But in the meantime, there's um, you know, it's a, couple of, a couple of retreats for people whom we've gotten to know in the past few years in Nashville, in Baton Rouge, in Atlanta. So a couple of things to kind of um, keep things exciting during the month of October. Um, and then it's then it's off to Fribourg. So that's where I stay. Nice.
0: Stand. Uh, one thing that somebody asked me that I didn't know the answer to: What are, what's the TI doing this fall? Is there going to be a lineup of virtual events, some combination of things virtual and in person? Yes.
1: Yeah, so there is the the emphasis is going to be to to host things on campus. Um, so the emphasis is shifting to intellectual retreats. And then whatever the actual chapter, the, the actual chapters themselves can muster. So you have some some schools that are back in swing, some schools that are hybrid, and some schools that are already basically entirely virtual. Um, right. So our programming uh, will be tailored to their specific setting. Um, so insofar as they're able to host events, you know, with open attendance, party on, go for it. Insofar so far as they're only able to have a few people, we're going to kind of like move towards seminar style type things, or you have a book club with your chapter. And then the last meeting you zoom in the author of the book, uh, something like that. And then um, the current plan is not to have quarantine lectures, but to continue to produce Aquinas one one videos on the virtues on faith and science, things along those lines. Um, and then maybe to do some things with RCIA programming. So the TI recorded, an RCIA program with TAN Books, St. Benedict's Press a couple of years back. And um, I know a lot of people have kind of gotten derailed or RCIA programs are um, having some struggles, you know, like hosting ordinary programming. So we're hoping to have like a kind of catch all RCIA program for people who want to learn the faith or who have learned the faith and want to refresh or, you know, people coming from a variety of different uh, perspectives or backgrounds. Um, and then And then a big push towards intellectual retreats. So I think there are like three so far scheduled in the fall, but that's going to kind of become par for the course. So one in New England, one in DC, which is actually to be at the house of studies uh, one in Texas and uh, we'll go from there. So nice. Those are the things
0: sister and Francis and I just decided that we're going to use credo that um, series father Gregory is referencing by the Thomistic Institute for our faith formation, working with our RCA students. Um, So I'm excited for that this upcoming year. That's awesome. This is you, the year. You know, I've been telling them don't let 2020 be a dumpster fire. Claim it back. <laughs> claim it back, right, by getting your sacraments. There this you is go. The year.
1: That's that's a great admission. We're like, well, like, you know, three quarters of the way through. So it just remains to to persevere, be constant, and look for good things in store. Who knows? Could be the best Christmas ever.
0: <laughs> that's right. Unfortunately, though, for a lot of people, um, and here we're getting to the topic of today's episode. But unfortunately for a lot of people though, their lives are their lives are ruled, ruled by fear and anxiety. Um, you know, in that in some ways, um, some of those sources of fear and anxiety are, are, um, driven by our current experience of the, of the coronavirus. Um, how have you, have you seen this come out in people's lives Father Gregory, what are some new fears and anxieties you've seen?
1: Yeah. So there's the kind of ordinary everyday ones that, um, many people noticed at the outset and continue to talk about, but, um, Certainly the change in perspective as regards other people, right? So um, when you're, you know, kind of like toddling along down the road and you're, you know, you're going to whatever coffee shop to get yourself a latte or something and somebody passes you walking their dog, oftentimes that person will like cut into the front lawn of the uh, house that they're passing and pass you at quite a, quite a distance with quite a wide berth Um right. a, Oftentimes, avoiding eye contact, not really greeting, things like that, and there, there's a kind of psychological toll that that takes, where you begin to experience yourself as more of a threat to another person, a source of contagion, rather than as a human being, um, and it can begin to feel very isolating, right? Because it seems that oftentimes there's a there's a spirit of fear, which can inform some of those practices. Now, mind you, there's you know obviously public health reasons and prudential reasons to do what people are encouraged to do, but sometimes they can have a a dehumanizing net effect um, on the, on the individual and it can lead to a kind of general or, uh, you know, like atmosphere of, of suspicion or fear, but beyond, I mean, those kind of like simple everyday things that people have noticed, I think um, the the cumulative effects of, uh, you know, like the last five, six months have begun to manifest themselves in new ways. Uh, so you, you know, like you heard interviews with college students on campuses at the beginning of the semester and they were asked, you know, like, are you going to be able to make it through the semester when you're being told that this will be more like a prison than it will be like a college. And some of these students just come back and they say like, yeah. Um, I mean, why bother with observing all of the norms because we're just going to get kicked off campus anyway. So we're just going to party hard. <laughs> and there's a kind of, there's a new kind of fear that informs that, you know, like you can think of the pagan saying, um you know carpe diem you know seize the day and it continues for uh or like fearing fearing tomorrow as it were uh, or trusting not in tomorrow so there's a sense too that there's like there's not a real trusting in tomorrow because most people don't have a real hope that things will get better that the vaccine will play out that life will return to normal that professional sports will be recognizable in the new season you know like everyone has their they're different preoccupations, so I think that you know some initial early fears have begun to change now and crystallize into more settled and like culturally widespread fears that have begun to dictate the terms of even the simplest of tasks.
0: Right on campus, um, you know, I have I have a particular concern for my students um, who already find it difficult to make their make their place right when you go off to college to get a solid group of friends. You know, particularly incoming freshmen. Um, you know it's difficult to get grounded now to be doing all of that with these new social protocols. Um, again, measures that are in the interest of public health. Um, it, it adds. It certainly adds a, a new level of anxiety and amplifies what's already present. I think part of that is the tension between those who will, those who willingly and attentively comply, and those who do not. Right. Um, it adds this new level of stress. Oh, are you a mask wearer or are you not a mask wearer? Um, and and that. That question alone, uh, in addition to any uh, any any number of other questions about compliance, um, puts up new barriers in relationships. Right? It makes it makes it difficult just to get to know people because um, uh, it seems that there's no there's no one um, dominant cultural response to everything that's going on, um, and so that that makes that makes relationship building uh, more difficult because there there's the simple obstacle if you don't know whether or not everyone's on the same page that you yourself are about um about compliance about public safety uh, uh, all, all of these all of these things that surround the coronavirus um so what 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 does saint thomas aquinas have to say about the way that fears and anxieties um operate in us um if you can if you can just kind of unpack you know some of these things that we've experienced culturally now if you can shed a little philosophical and theological light on them
1: yeah so saint thomas kind of introduces the theme in a variety of settings in his works. So fear, obviously, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, it can be a um, relatively simple thing, it can be a very complex thing. So when we think of fear, we think about it first as a kind of passion, a movement of the sense appetite. Uh, But then you can also think about it as a sin against uh, fortitude, a sin against courage, or you can also think about it as a gift of the Holy Spirit, the fear of the Lord, which perfects hope. Um, and also perfects temperance. So we want to be careful or we want to be deliberate in how we build up our picture of fear because there can be good and bad dimensions. Um, <clears throat> so first, just kind of starting with the sense appetite, those uh, movements of you know the body that uh, we, we share in common with animals. And fear, in a basic sense, is just um, this notion that you have some evil that's threatening you and you do not think that you can overcome it. So St. Thomas draws this basic distinction between like relatively simple passions, where they're just kind of like see, pursue, get, or see, flee, sorrow, Um, and the more complex passions, which he thinks, um, you know, kind of register or lodge in the irascible power. You don't need to remember that, so you can just kind of skip over the word, but um, this idea that (laughs) not only is there a good or a bad thing with which you are engaging, but there's some kind of difficulty in our engagement with that good or bad thing, so it's not simply a matter of seeing a good thing, grabbing it, assimilating it—you know, delighting therein. It's a matter of having to vie with some—I don't know—with with something in it that's arduous, right? That's something in it that's um, just not immediately or not um, apparently easy to navigate. Um, so when you uh, when you think in this regard about say something very simple like obtaining a meal, you may have had the experience, you know, in Corona Tide of trying to get food. And maybe you just pulled up your Chick-fil-A app and you went to the nearest Chick-fil-A and you came to discover that everyone else, you know, within a five zip code radius had had the exact same idea. (laughs) And that might move you to despair, right? Because here's a good thing, but the difficulty of obtaining that good thing is so significant that you fear, you know, like you, you're, you basically relegate yourself to one who will not eat Chick-fil-A this afternoon. This happened to Father Jacob Bertram and me on our way out to California, or excuse me, to Colorado for summer projects. And we just we just went to Chipotle. You know, we we gave up. So that's, here's what something that's, sorrow. Right, I know. I mean, agony, pain, dismay. Um, so, so despair is one of these kind of classic examples. But hope is another one where you see something difficult, but, but it's good and it merits your consideration. It's worth the effort. And so you go for it. Um, and then fear is where there's an evil thing and it threatens you and you just, uh, you really don't think that you're going to be overcome it, be able to overcome it, even if you, even if you vie with it. So that's just kind of like the basic description of what fear is as it registers in our sense appetite. But obviously we Mm -hmm. can spell out Mm -hmm. further how it has, um, further effects in our spiritual life as it, as it is spiritualized in the context of, uh, the life of a human being. Right.
0: Right. One, I, I mean, I think one thing that's really important as, you know, as we begin to open this up here is to understand that, for, again, for Aquinas, the passions, um, the passions are not in and of themselves moral movements, right? Um, you, you mentioned that in passing, but I think that's, that's really important to hit on, right? Um, so Aquinas quotes Aristotle um, in this fashion, say, you know, citing the, the philosopher saying that the passions themselves call for neither praise nor blame because we neither praise nor blame those who are angry or afraid but only those who behave in an ordinate or inordinate manner. Right. So again, thinking in the context of um, thinking in the context of what we're morally responsible for, it's how we, it's how we react to this, um, to this passion, right. To this experience of the passion. Um, Yeah. So so like, you know, can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I was just going to say that you have to be reasonable in how you process your emotions Right, so sometimes emotions kind of get out ahead of you and they may cloud your vision or carry you off or otherwise um, impede your capacity to act reasonably. Um, you can think about somebody, you know, these are the types of things that just get uh, described at great length and in beautiful detail in, in literature. You can think about, um, mm. let's think of an example of somebody who is made afraid in a novel. Um, so, uh, I just I just read a, a novel recently um, called Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, um, and in that novel, there's a woman <clears throat> who is uh, being courted by a variety of men, but I think she's she's afraid of m- being made to live her life on their terms. So she's mm-hmm. courted by one man who's a lord, you know, he's a uh, a peer, and she I think she's she's repulsed by the thought of um, you know marrying him because she knows that she would be overcome. Uh, by his lifestyle and that hers would kind of cease to be in a recognizable fashion. And then she's courted by a variety of other people, but <clears throat> ultimately she decides against marriage um, to one, the other, the last. She, she picks one, um, but it's ultimately kind of on her terms, even though it does bring about great sorrow in her life. So I think that um, like fear is to be incorporated into a, a true human life, into a true human culture, and it can be an a just or an adequate response to something. Right. So there are bad things that happen and there are evil things that threaten us. And it's good to fear them. And if we didn't fear them, we might make, you know, like very foolish decisions.
0: Right. So, so right. like, for
1: instance, Father Jacob Birch and I went hiking in Colorado. We hiked this thing called Long's Peak. It's a it's a 14 er in Rocky Mountain National Park. And there are parts of it that are fearful. Right. So you the approach hike is like six miles and the, the end is maybe, I don't know, between like one and one and a half miles where you're at one point on this thing called the ledges where it, it just really it falls off to your right pretty sheer rock just straight down for like 400 feet maybe made up number and then you're in this part called the trough where you're you're going again straight up in this ravine but the rock can be loose at times and you're a little bit nervous if you don't have hands and feet on the ground and then you turn the corner and go to the narrows and here it's just like a sheer drop to the one direction maybe like a thousand feet again made up number probably exaggerated deal with it and and if if you didn't fear you know if you didn't fear in those instances you might take strange risks Um, You might be led to act imprudently, So it's good that you do fear, just like it's good that you experience pain. Otherwise, you just leave your hand on the burner on the oven, or excuse me, the burner on the the stove without realizing it. Uh, So fear alerts you to something that's that's terrible, but it it shouldn't overrun your sensibilities. It shouldn't paralyze you, right? And it shouldn't make you to act in a way that's inhuman or subhuman. I think that's the kind of the basic idea.
0: Right. Um, You know, and at the heart of that, just to echo again what you were saying earlier about um, reason governing the passions, um, reason will dictate which evils must be um, shunned, the things that we must flee from, and um, reason will dictate those evils according to which endurance will be profitable for us. Right. So we can we can recognize by our reason um, that this is the kind of evil that it is not only possible for me to withstand but perhaps even the kind of thing um, that can that can contribute to my own growth and virtue. Um,
1: yeah, and that's where, you know, when, when you make those judgments, then now we're, we're in the region of describing fear as a sin because there are times during which reality demands of us that we be courageous, right? That we keep on and not look back. And um, if we are overwhelmed by our experience at that point, paralyzed by it, so deeply saddened, as to uh, prove negligent or inconstant, then that would be an instance of a sin of fear, right? That that we have not asked sufficiently for the grace of God to help us overcome this difficulty, or we have not cooperated with the grace that he has given. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we can have the assurance that God will not permit us to be tempted beyond our strength, or he'll, he'll not permit an evil to befall from which he cannot also draw out some good. And it's in abandoning that confidence that we are then cowed by fear, and it can be something that's that's sinful. So the good is presented to us. Uh, we have some appreciation for the good, some knowledge of it, but then we choose against the good or go in for lesser goods uh, in the hierarchy because we are afraid of what may befall. You know, thereby, thereby, kind of like lacking hope and and lacking trust and confidence in the Lord's provision.
0: Well, that's so cheerful. What a, what a great, what a great moment to to take a take a pause right after. Um, I promise when we come back, the sun will come out. Uh, we <laughs> will we'll begin exploring um, theological sources of our confidence for hope. You know, we as Christian people respond to fear in a particular way. It's driven not just by our reason, but by the accords of grace and the many designs of, of God's work, of God's providence. Um, we're going to unpack those and um, look at other ways to, to handle and to counter fear and anxiety in our lives when we come back right after this. This is Godsplaining. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at org slash godsplaining. And welcome back to Godsplaining. Uh, I'm Father Patrick Briscoe, and today I am hanging out with um, the villainous Father Gregory Pine. That just felt like the right word.
1: Nice. I didn't know if it was an adjective or a noun, if you were calling me a female villain. Or if you're calling as oh, a, a villain, per, yeah. yeah, exactly. That was that was yeah. ambiguous, but then I got through it.
0: Good. Yeah. Um, you know, I only wish to insult you so much, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's certainly certainly the less of those two uh, those two playful uh, mockings. Um, so anyway, we promised you that the sum would come out when we when we got back here, and then we would start talking about how how we how we counter fear how we counter anxiety for christians you know we're not we're not just pollyannish hope is not hope is not just an emotion hope is not just a kind of willful optimism that everything always works out for those uh you know who say their prayers and are good to everyone in their lives um we know that there's something there's something deeper there that motivates and informs um the christian responses to fear and to anxiety uh so, Father Gregory, um, can't take us away here. Where should we start uh, as we're thinking about what animates um, the Christian response to fear?
1: Yeah, I think um, the kind of cultural instinct is to go in for self-help, right? To, when looking for sources of hope is to meditate on how great you are and how good things could be if you were just to be sufficiently cognizant of how great you are. But the, the Christian response mm-hmm. is adamantly that if we are to be hopeful, if we are to overcome fear, we need to look at God. Right, we need to look at God. That was something that our student master, Father Andrew Hofer, would insist upon with great frequency. He's like theology is about God. The life of faith <laughs> is about <laughs> no, That's God. right. You oh, are gosh. about yeah. God. <clears throat> um, mm. And when we when we consider God, we find here and in His interaction with us and with reality, sources of of great confidence, sources of great hope. You can think first of um, you know God's providence. So the fact that we see God taking care of those, you know, who are called according to his purpose. And um, that this is something that we can actually begin to get sensitized to. It's something for which we can develop a kind of sympathy. Uh, so we believe that, that God is good, right? And that he created us because he's mm-hmm. good. Uh, he created us for good and that he has a plan which will work out, which will effectuate in the good. And that we're part of that plan. And God isn't just you know one cause in and amongst a mess of causes, rather. He is a particular kind of cause. Co- He's a universal cause, and he orchestrates all of our lives in such a way, not as to be like a creepy marionette, but uh, so as to draw forth from us a noble, a beautiful, a good response uh, to both sorrow and joy. And so we can look around in our lives and uh, develop the capacity for identifying his providence, Okay. simple thing, you know, positive psychologists say each day you should just list three things for which you're thankful. Now, gratitude obviously is a theological reality because whenever you're thanking, you're thanking someone and it's not yourself. Uh, So we can begin to kind of break open this conversation that we have, you know, with ourselves about ourselves to God and begin to thank God for the different ways in which um, he is being generous, the different ways in which He is present, the different ways in which we are cognizant of his love. So I think like a very simple example, um, you know, might be of uh, aid in this regard. Um, I was just talking to a Dominican friar who a couple days ago was confronted by a gentleman in his parish who was really struggling with what he perceived to be um, a kind of inborn hypocrisy in the pro-life movement. He was saying like, you know, Catholics seem to care a lot about babies at the outset. They don't seem to care a lot about babies and mothers beyond their birth or beyond the birth of the baby, right? Um, beyond uh, the, the the mother's giving birth. He said, that seems to be hypocritical. It really undermines the pro-life argument. I don't really think that these Catholics care too terribly much about the pro-life argument or, you know, the people involved as it were. Um, and I think it's just a matter of like power politics and dot, dot, dot. Well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. two days mm-hmm. previously, um, this particular brother of ours had had, you know, like he had gone to spend some time with a family in, you know, his, I mean, like outside of his parish, but close by, and um, had struck up a conversation with a woman who had just made the decision with her husband to foster. Um, So to foster specifically zero to two year olds. And uh, the reason that she gave as to why she made this choice was because um, she thought that it mattered, basically. Like she was convinced that, that life is precious. And she and her husband wanted to step up and kind of make a more concrete step in the life of their family to do that. And so just, you know, he's having this conversation with the guy, and just a couple of days before, he had met somebody who testifies to precisely what this man is looking for, and he's able to draw the connections, you know, and this man with whom he's speaking is really impacted by it. He's really, really moved by it. So, like, here's an instance where, like, God is moving, very manifestly moving, and if we, you know, gradually, slowly develop the habits of identifying that, We can learn to be more grateful for his providence, which also takes account of the evil things that befall, the fearful things that threaten.
0: One of the great scripture verses um, that I think encapsulates so much of what you're presenting theologically here when thinking about God's providence comes from um, Luke. So in chapter 12, Luke has already sent out, Luke has told us how the Lord has already sent out the 72 disciples. And in chapter 12, Jesus is giving the disciples a big pep talk, right? So in chapter 12, there's conversations about coming persecutions, about continuing to um, be united and not divided. Um, so, so it's a, it's a chapter that, that is talking about difficulty. And in the middle of that chapter, um, Luke the evangelist records the words of Jesus, uh, wherein the Lord says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat, about your body or what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Notice the ravens, they do not sow or weep. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more important are you than birds? Can any of you by worrying add a moment to your lifespan? If the smallest things are beyond your control, why are you anxious about the rest? There's some other great verses there, but uh, that, that, passage is so powerful because it reminds us like look look around the natural world and see that God has ordered the universe and God is providing for everything that he has created and that those designs extend to um not just the kind of ordering of the animal kingdom but the ordering of the purpose of our lives and the goods of our soul Uh, I've always found such great confidence in that I think it's a beautiful it's a beautiful passage of scripture yeah
1: no I um um, I was just going to add simply that um it gives you Uh, a kind of god's eye view on our place in the world as it were and it doesn't make our place in the world seem small or insignificant it makes it seem yet more precious Mm -hmm. which is awesome
0: now one of the things that i've always appreciated um the dutiful listeners of the show know that i dig french spirituality Mm. and one of the reasons why i dig french spirituality is because like irish things um it tends not to be happy all the time (laughs) that there's an there's an embrace of the darkness right so you have you have these great french catholic thinkers like paul claudel that um, offer these incredible lines um, like claudel claudel insists that um, christ did not um, become incarnate to take away all of our suffering but to fill it with his presence um, leading us to himself uh, it's such a consolation that the life of Jesus, which culminates in the passion, um, paves a, a, a true, a real, a profound, um, a, a deep, uh, a meaningful response to suffering that is often so counterintuitive to people's natural experience, right? So, Father Gregory, can you tell us a little bit about how, you, how the passion speaks directly to um, fear and anxiety and why, why Jesus' death um, is such a source of inspiration for us.
1: Yeah, you can think about it just in terms of like what the Lord is doing, right? So the worst possible threat um, impinges on the Lord's life, right? Uh, Men and women set about to kill God. There is nothing more fearful. Uh, There is nothing more terrible. And yet the Lord does not shirk that. The Lord does not flee from it but rather he kind of absorbs it as it were and transforms it uh, by virtue of the obedience and love with the, which he shows to the father. So you see something that is objectively fearful and the Lord experiences a repugnance to it, right? In his humanity. So you can think about the scene uh, that's recounted of the garden of Gethsemane, where the Lord says, you know, if it be possible, let this chalice pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. So in his divine will, he is completely in accord with the will of the Father, for they subsist in the same divine nature. In his human will, he's made the choice to undergo what will what will happen. But that that doesn't mean that he doesn't experience some repugnance, right? A kind of repulsion mm-hmm. at the thought of of being killed. Uh, but yet he is able to embrace the suffering uh, and the eventual death. By virtue of the fact that he, repre- like he, he recognizes it as you know, coming from God and for God, as somehow bound up with the salvation of men, uh, as meriting for us by his infinite charity, um, this, by this pleasing sacrifice, a satisfaction for what we have done and what we have um, well, failed to do. So on, on the one hand, you just think about it in those terms that the Lord has the most fearful thing presented to him, and he says yes because he recognizes it as part of God's plan. Uh, But on the other hand, too, it becomes for us um, a source of confidence that a similar work might be made incarnate in our own flesh, right? So like Jacques-Philippe talks about in Searching For and Maintaining Peace that whenever you look at the crucifix, you know, this is something that you tell little children, you know, like look at the crucifix, you know, Jesus shows you there how much he loves you. His hands are spread as wide as they can be. Um, But when we look at the crucifix, we perceive the lengths to which Christ will go, right? We see how very... um, you know, generous is the God whom we worship. We see how very noble is the human nature with which we have been entrusted, because it's worth dying for. We see how very grave are the wages of sin. Right? We see we see all of these things in one very simple, uh, uncomplicated, but theologically weighty gesture, namely, you know, the Lord's taking human flesh and dying for us. So, yes, like life is very fearful and there are many terrible things that impinge upon us, but Conducted in faith, we are able to bear the weight of them because that weight has been borne already by Christ before us and in us, and you know coming after us as it were, so that's yeah just I don't know some some small thoughts in that regard
0: yeah, that's excellent um i I want to conclude because i I have to slip one more word in here um about devotion to the sacred heart um because of the passion there there are no sorrows that the heart of Jesus didn't know um the separation from his friends, the extent of his physical sufferings um the, uh, the, 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 the feeling of abandonment by one's own people. Um, Christ's heart bore all of those. Um, and so I, I think very profound that associated with devotion to the sacred heart is that promise of the gentle mastery of Jesus from Matthew's gospel, um, namely the following verses. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Friends, we know the words of scripture are true and that we can trust them. My hope for any of you who are listening or are struggling with fear and anxiety and have had um, you know, new experiences, new difficulties because of our situation with the coronavirus right now, my hope for you, my prayer for you is that you find great consolation um, in the peace that only Jesus offers and the confidence that God's providence and the merits of his passion will continue to um, uplift and renew you. I think that's all we have for today. Um, We could keep talking father Gregory, and I can go for a while, but um, we'll just hit the pause button. We'll, we'll regroup. You'll regroup. Pray for us, please like and share um, the show. We're getting some merch out soon ish. Um, You know, that's Mm -hmm. one of my projects. So hopefully we'll, we'll populate a store um, whereupon you could display your affection for our show on every item that you own you can buy some stickers and put them on your laptop and so forth um we hope that you would do so uh again that's not up yet but it's coming so uh that's the only important announcement i have
1: i have no important announcements so i will lapse into silence
0: that's great um the silence of uh confidence of the lord
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that fulsome same. silence alright
0: well thank you all for listening know that we're praying for you God bless thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph visit us at opeast.org